Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. For more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. Well, I'm Dean Enfinger. I'm an associate pastor here at River Bluff, filling in for our lead pastor, who's recovering from heart surgery, Joe Still. And I heard from Joe this morning. He is doing very well. In fact, he's been released from his heart surgeon into his cardiologist. Uh, So that's good. He's going to start cardiac rehab soon. And he is walking about three to four miles a day. So praise God. He's doing extremely, extremely well. Amen. And Joe, I know you're watching. We're praying for your brother. I know you're chomping at the bit to get back here. But take your time. Listen to your doctor. Listen to your wife. All right, well, I feel like I've spent my weekend in church because this weekend we had an inner healing prayer conference here at the church. We had Judith McNutt and her team came up and just these uh, women with her that were just these prayer warriors, these sweet ladies. And Judith McNutt herself, for for her basically being well-known and famous, was just this sweet, kind lady, just this gentle spirit. Um, walked with this great humility and grace, and it was a wonderful time that we had here. And we know that inner healing prayer, as counselors, we can work with someone for a year, and inner healing prayer, bringing the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit into the meeting, can radically change someone's life from the inside out in one session. And so we had all of these therapists and counselors that filled up this room to learn how to incorporate inner healing prayer into their practice when they're working with their clients. And it was amazing because they were able to experience some of that inner healing themselves as that was taught. I was able to experience some of that. You know, we all have these painful memories from our past or we have past trauma. So it was just a wonderful time in the Lord. I thank River Bluff for that opportunity and that welcoming that we were able to do that here. And Judith started off the conference by saying, why don't you give the Lord your yes? Give your yes to the Lord. In other words, give your yes to the Lord. What do you want to do in me this morning? What do you want me to learn? What do you want me to experience? What are you revealing to me? And maybe what, what are you convicting me of that I may need to change? And so I would like us to do that this morning. I, I would like us to say yes to the Lord. Just say, yes, Lord. And let's do that on three. One, two, three. Yes, Lord. Amen. Well, my message, I entitled it, What Would Jesus Do? And we all remember those bracelets we would wear, WWJD, What Would Jesus Do? And it was to remind us in every situation that we came into to really have it under the the lens of what would Jesus do in this situation? And so I'm going to look at Matthew 16, and I think a great way to see what Jesus was do is to study his life, to see how he actually interacted with people. And we're going to see he's interacting with the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and his disciples. So read with me as we start here in in verses 1 through 4. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, when it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. 
And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil, an adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. So we can see in this passage that the Pharisees and Sadducees are working together to kind of trip up Jesus. And the interesting thing is, is that Pharisees and Sadducees didn't really get along. They were kind of enemies. You know, the, the Pharisees were this strict religious group, and they really weren't politically motivated. But the Sadducees were politically motivated. And they were kind of the aristocracy, the elite, the wealthy. And the Sadducees were willing to work with the Romans so that they could maintain their wealth and their power. And these two groups also differed on various theological differences. For example, the Pharisees believed in angels and the resurrection of the dead, but the Sadducees did not. In fact, the Apostle Paul uses this difference to his advantage when he was brought into court in Jerusalem. Read with me in Acts 23, 6 through 9. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring, them, bring him into the barracks. It is interesting, Paul mentions that he was on trial because of the resurrection of the dead. and Actually, he was on trial because of the resurrection of Jesus. But you can see how these Pharisees and Sadducees are enemies of each other, that they would contend so sharply with each other, they had to get Paul out of there, or they became violent. They were afraid he was going to tear him to pieces. So why were they working together? They were working together because Jesus was a threat to them, a threat to their way of life. He was having this tremendous impact and influence on the people, and Jesus spoke with authority. And he performed miracles wherever he went. You know, he, he healed the lame, the blind, the deaf could hear, lepers. He drove out demons. All the people were flocking to see and hear and encounter Jesus. And the Pharisees and Sadducees were frustrated. You know, Jesus didn't come up through their system. You know, he, didn't, he wasn't answerable to anybody. There was no group or committee that Jesus had to talk to to get permission to do anything. No one could really control him. And every time they came against him, that they tried to trap him, he outwitted them. I like the passage in Luke chapter 20, verses 1 through 8. 
One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us, by what authority you do these things? Or who is it that gave you this authority? He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, Well, if we say it from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered, They did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. You know, it is interesting. These religious leaders didn't know that, that they were trying to outsmart the Son of God. That was, that was really never going to happen. But Jesus was this outsider, this, this man from Nazareth. He didn't wear fancy clothes. He's a carpenter's son. And great crowds are following him, hanging on every word. And they're learning about the true heart of God. And these two groups, they were used to being respected, even feared. But Jesus continually stood up to them, exposed them as hypocrites and evil. So they hated him. In contrast, Jesus was loved by the people. He welcomed everyone. The Pharisees and the Sadducees had to feel like they were losing control, that they were losing ground. So they kept trying to find a way to silence Jesus or discredit him. You know, we see that in, in our culture today. If you can discredit someone, if you can cancel them, then no one will listen to them anymore. And to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. As if to say, sure, you can do all these earthly miracles, you know, you can drive out demons and heal the lame and the sick, but can you bring down fire from heaven? Truthfully, he could, but Jesus knew their hearts. You know, and it seems to me in this moment that it was almost like, I just don't have enough time for this. I, I need to get with the people to spread the gospel, to set captives free. And he says, I'm going to address the real issue by using a sign of heaven. And I love the way the message translation states it. You have a saying that goes, red sky at night, sailors delight. Red sky at morning, sailors take warning. You find it easy enough to forecast the weather. Why can't you read the signs of the times? If they could have, if they could have really read the signs of the times, they would have realized the Messiah was among them. But this religious elite, the Pharisees and Sadducees, which is what they considered themselves, and they held tightly to these religious rules and regulations, and it was a way that they maintained control. They believed that because they upheld these strict Jewish traditions and rules, that their works would make them righteous. We can never substitute religion for a relationship. We can never substitute religion for a relationship. You know, as Christians today, we can still get caught up in a works mentality, can't we? Where I have to do these things that, so that God will be happy with me, or I have to perform along this certain way and obey these religious rules so that I'll have 
God's favor and things will go well with me. It's kind of a works-based Christianity. It is only the finished work of the cross that makes us righteous. We're all sinners. I'm a sinner. I can't earn it through my own efforts. None of us can. Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Our relationship, our relationship with Jesus is the most important part of our earthly journey. And it's, it's easy sometimes to get sidetracked in these religious activities. And we kind of neglect the time to work on our relationship with Jesus. Are you taking time to seek God's presence? One of the things that, that we did this weekend with the inner healing prayer is was what they called soaking prayer. Basically, it was just spending time with Jesus, not rushing through a prayer, but really just taking the time and letting the Lord talk to us. These Pharisees were actually looking for a Messiah, but they missed it. You know, in their mind, the Messiah was going to be this conquering king that just came in and threw the Romans out, and they would return to those glory days of King David and King Solomon. They wanted to be respected. They wanted to be feared by the people. Jesus didn't fear them. You know, all those passages in the Bible where it says, fear not, Jesus exemplifies that. Listen to what he says to this religious elite. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. You Pharisees and you Sadducees, you are part of an evil generation. You're evil in the way you practice religion, to use it as a weapon to keep people down instead of lifting them up. And you commit adultery by seeking a sign from the sky. You know, nothing really would have satisfied those groups. If Jesus had brought down fire from heaven, I still don't think they would have believed him. And then Jesus gives them this prophetic word about himself. He talks about the sign of Jonah. And just to kind of give you the short version of Jonah, Jonah was that prophet who ran from God. He was supposed to go to Nineveh and preach judgment, give them God's word against the people there, but Jonah ran in the opposite direction. And while he's sailing in the opposite direction on a ship, a great storm comes up. And the sailors were all going to perish. They were going to die. And Jonah knew that it was because of his disobedience. So he said, the way you're going to live is you've got to throw me overboard. Jonah sacrificed himself just as Jesus sacrificed himself for us. And he said, throw me into the sea. And so he was buried into the sea, swallowed up by the whale, just as Christ was buried in the tomb. Jonah came back three days later as back from the dead. And we know that Jesus was raised from the dead. The sign of Jonah was Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. I imagine that after Jesus' resurrection, that finally made sense for the disciples. Because, you know, a lot of times they didn't ask him. They were afraid to ask him what's going on. But they figured it out at that point. And I'm sure there were so many times 
that all of these words that Jesus said, all of these actions made sense because now they understood the plan, the purpose of his life on earth. But they often missed it. Now, speaking of missing it, I love the next passage. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. I can really picture this scene. I would have been in this scene. I would have been the guy getting out of the boat and going, he's talking about bread. We didn't bring bread. I knew we should have brought bread. And now we're in the middle of nowhere. Where are we going to find bread? Is, anybody, is there a piggly wiggly close by where we can get some bread? And who was supposed to remember the bread? Thaddeus? Wasn't it your turn to remember the bread? And Jesus is saying, guys, guys, why do you think I'm talking about bread? Don't you remember the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Do you really think that I'm worried about bread? It's not about bread. It's about the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Strong's Concordance describes this leaven as a mental and moral corruption that has a tendency to infect others. Mental and moral corruption has a tendency to infect others. It goes viral. Why did Jesus warn them about the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? I believe because when he was teaching his disciples, he knew that it's so easy to get caught up in religious activities traditions and customs, and to think so highly of the practice, or maybe, maybe too highly of ourselves. You know, we're so much better than those other churches. We're doing it right, and everybody's doing it wrong. I remember my first deacon's meeting, and I was a young man. I was in my, I was in my 20s, and I was driving to the deacon's meeting, and I was so excited. And I'm praying to the Lord, and I'm like, Lord, this is, this is so great. This is such an honor to be a deacon in my church. And I went to the deacon's meeting, and I came in, and they said, well, the first thing you need to do is get a cup of coffee. I'm like, oh, great. Well, I got my cup of coffee, and we sat around this big table, and the minister was at the head of the table, and, and he gave a, a short devotion that was really good. And, and then the chairman of the deacon said, men, we need to talk about the keys I'm like, the keys, the keys of the Bible, the kingdom, is this, there's some new knowledge that I'm going to learn here? And he's, but it wasn't that. It was the keys to the church. And who had keys? And who had keys and wasn't supposed to have keys? And who had keys and left town and didn't turn their keys in? 
And maybe we should change the locks on the doors because of these people that had keys that shouldn't have keys. Or maybe we should just rekey them. This went on for an hour and a half that we talked about the keys. And I left the deacons meeting and I was disappointed. I was a little disappointed. But you know, it didn't take long before I kind of fell in line, so to speak. I fell in that kind of tradition. And nobody really said this to me, but I just figured that the role of a deacon was to take care of the church and the facilities, to make sure the grass was cut, to make sure that we had the right budget and that we had money in the emergency fund, you know, just all the business of the church. And really the spiritual part, well, that was the pastor's job. You know, after all, what are we paying him for? I was easily led into that tradition. You know, we had a lot of traditions. We had, you know, a choir and a choir loft. A lot of you can remember that, pews. We had these big chairs on each side of the stage, and the minister would sit in the chair, and then the choir director would come out, and the poor minister would sit in this chair and stare at the congregation, and we'd stare at him, and they'd do the whole choir thing, and he just sat there that whole time. I'm so glad we don't have that tradition. I love being down there praising the Lord. But we had this new Christian that came to our church. And, and I'm just going to call him JC. And he was a brand new Christian, had never been in church. And we got to experience his perspective. And he kept questioning things. He kept saying, okay, you're singing these hymns. Why don't you, why don't you sing that third line? Why is it always one, two, and four? And then just as I am. Why do we have to sing that 18 times? What, what's with that? And so many times we would say, well, JC, that's, that's just the way we've always done it. That was, that was what we'd tell him. One day we were in class, and I was in a young couples class with JC and his wife. And the, uh, one of the deacons walked in, and he made an announcement. And then he left. And JC, he didn't know who he was. He was like, who's that dude? We said, well, that's, that's Deacon Bob. And he goes, oh, you know why you always take two deacons fishing with you? Because if you take just one, he'll drink all your beer. <laughs> and half of us laughed, and half didn't. I think uh, maybe it hit a little close to home. There was this hypocrisy that was in our church, in so many churches. But don't let the religious leaven stand in the way of following Jesus. I, I, we recently, Melanie and I saw the movie Jesus Revolution. And in that movie uh, with Chuck Smith, these hippies start coming to his church. And the hippies are getting saved and they're bringing more hippies in. And his regular attenders are kind of getting aggravated. You know, they're going, oh, these hippies are in here and they got long hair. You know, they dress funny. And a lot of them are barefoot. We can't have a barefoot people coming into the church. It's just unsanitary. Chuck, you got to do something about this. And the next scene shows the Sunday morning, and there's a line of hippies. And the regular attenders are going, why is this line out here? And as they come around the side of the line, they see the front door of the church, and Chuck Smith is on his knees with a basin of water, and he's washing their feet as they come to the church. We can't let the religious leaven block us from following Jesus or from preventing others from following Jesus. Strong's Concordance, 
points that out. Leaven can infect the whole group with corrupt thinking. There were some things in me. One of the things that I struggled with um, was raising my hands in church. I, I was in my church from the nursery on, and we just didn't do that. And I felt uncomfortable doing that. And everybody around me was enjoying themselves and praising the Lord, and I would just have this, like, couldn't get my hands up really high. And so then that weekend, a, a weekend, I went up to Clemson, and sorry, Kurt, I went to Clemson and cheered at a, a football game. You know, we're in the football game, we're, we're yelling our guts out on third down, you know, and then they would score a touchdown. And I would raise my hands, and I would high-five the guy on the left, and I would high-five the guy on the right. And, you know, and we're just praising the team for the touchdown. And I came back to church, and I'm in church, and I'm having that same mental battle about raising my hands in church. And the Lord just kind of spoke to me, and he says, Dean, you can raise your hands and praise for a football team, and you can't praise me. And that did it. I, I never had a problem after that. There's a famous quote from, from Thomas Jefferson that I love, and it says, in matters of style, swim with the currents. But in matters of principle, stand like a rock. Disciples are learning that these Pharisees and these Sadducees can infect others with their leaven, their corrupt thinking, their pride. You know, they, they may have missed it with the bread, but I love the next passage because they get it. Well, at least Peter gets it. But it's a great conversation with Jesus and his disciples. Read with me in verses 13 through 19. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven and I tell you, you're Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged his disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Jesus is revealed as the Son of God, and he recognizes that his Father has revealed this to Peter, Peter the fisherman, Peter the ordinary guy, the blue-collar guy. I love Peter. I really do. You know, he got it right sometimes. You know, he walked on the water, but he also sank. He got it right, and he got it wrong. You know, there were, there were these great miracles, and then there were just moments of complete understanding, misunderstanding. You know, there were so many lessons learned from Peter. And I have a blue-collar worldview. I just do. Now, I've been to college, and I have my master's in pastoral counseling, but I spent a lot of my life delivering furniture. And I, I grew up mowing grass, and I, 
I was a student bus driver. I worked in a textile mill. So I identify with Peter. You know, Peter liked to fish. I like to fish. I like to eat fish. You know, sometimes I'll go into a restaurant and I'll order fish just for the halibut. <laughs> Do you know why fish don't play basketball? They're afraid of the net. So God reveals this to Peter, to this ordinary guy like me, and God still reveals himself today. I love the story, there's a story of a, of a farmer in the Midwest, and it's a farmer and his farmer's wife, and it's Christmas time. And it was a tradition of the wife, she would go into town, and there was like a midnight service that, that ended at midnight on Christmas Eve. And every year she would ask her, her husband, the farmer, to go with her. And every year he would decline. He would say, I, I can't do it. I, I just don't believe it. You know, I don't understand that this God of heaven would, would send his son into a manger of all places and then send him to die on a cross. It just doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me, so I'm not going to go. So, like every other year, she, she drove off to go into town to the service. And he stayed there. And then it started to snow. And... He said, well, she's going to be coming back, and it may be hard for her to find the, the driveway or the road. And he says, I need to get some lights on. He turns the light on the porch. He had a light out by his barn. And then he had another light that was far out on the field next to the road so she could find her way in. And when he turned on that far light, he noticed that there were a flock of birds that were, were down in the field. And he said, that's unusual. There shouldn't be birds out there. And he, he got his binoculars out, and he loved birds, and he noticed these birds should be farther south. They shouldn't even be here. He said, they're going to freeze to death. And he checked the weather report, and sure enough, it was, it was going to be even colder than he thought. And he said, what can I do to help these birds? And he said, the barn. If I can get them into the barn, they'll be safe, they'll be warm. So he goes out, and he, he opens up the barn doors, and he turns the light on in there, and he goes back in the house, and he's watching with his binoculars, and they don't move. They just stay right there. He's saying, what can I do? Well, maybe birdseed will lure him out. So he goes and gets bags of birdseed, and he makes a trail into the barn. He goes back into the house and watches, and the birds don't move. So he said, well, maybe I can, I can scare him into the barn. So he goes out, and he goes way around the back of his field. He comes up behind the birds to scare them, and they, and they take off, and they fly over to another part, but not, not to the barn. He said, well, I can chase them from there into the barn. He goes out to that area to do it one more time, and the birds take off and fly even farther away. And he just sinks to his knees, and he says, if I could just be a bird for one night, I could save them, I could talk to them, I could lead them into the barn where they'd be safe and warm, and they wouldn't perish. And just at that moment, the church bells began ringing in town. And he realized why Jesus came. He came to talk to us, to lead us to that, to sacrifice his life so that we wouldn't perish. God still reveals himself today. The Messiah, son of the living God. This was a mountaintop experience for Peter. But look at what happens next. 
verses 21 through 23. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on things of God, but on the things of man. So we see Peter goes from the mountaintop to the valley, like I have so many times. And it doesn't take long. Peter kind of took it on himself to correct the Son of God. That's never a wise thing to do. Even when you say that, correct the Son of God, you know it sounds wrong. But Peter, I think Peter had that same, that same vision that Jesus was going to come in and he was going to overthrow the government with the, with the will of the people and that they were all going to be part of the kingdom, Peter and all the disciples, that he would conquer Jerusalem. He would conquer the, the religious elite. But Peter had no idea that Jesus would conquer sin. Jesus would conquer death. Jesus said, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter was just limited in his thinking. And God's ways are so much higher than our ways. And the rebuke was significant for Peter. It taught Peter a lesson. It taught him how to better follow Jesus, how to be a better leader. Peter was a natural leader. He really was. But he had to be corrected. He had to be humbled so that he could really be used. And the Lord doesn't mind humbling us. He can humble us quick. I shared this in the first service, and I didn't know if I would share it, so I did it for them. I might as well do it for you guys. But I had my own humbling experience. I was involved in the theater, and I did theater for roughly 10 years. I was in dozens of plays and just enjoyed that. Um, still like we do dramas here and I still enjoy that. And so it was about this time that I, I joined a church and they had a drama team and I got on the drama team and um, we were going to do our first little drama for the church. And th they, were, they were good people on there, but there was this one young lady that was just a little challenged in her drama, let's just say it that way. She was not a very talented actress, and she had trouble with her lines and things like this, and we had to kind of coach her along. And right before we go up, we're sitting on the front row, and we're all mic'd up, you know, and I'm ready to go. And, and I look to my left, and I look to my right at these, these people that have not been in theater, like me, for 10 years, and they'll dozens of plays. And I have this thought. They're lucky to have me. And we go on stage, and we're in the middle of the drama, and it comes time for my line, and I got nothing. I could not remember my line to save my life. It was a total blank. And that doesn't happen to you. Melly can tell you she's seen me in place. I was like, and I was the deer in the headlights. My heart was pounding a million miles an hour. Nobody knew what to do. They're all looking at me. The girl, who was the least talented, said, didn't you mean to say, and she gave me my line. 
and I was able to get through the drama. And I got off stage, and the, the drama director came to me, and he's like, Dean, what happened to you? I said, I know exactly what happened to me. The Lord humbled me, and he humbled me quick. Any time that I'm coming to give a message or anything or do any drama, I go to the Lord, and I say, Lord, I said, I cannot do it without you. Holy Spirit, empower me. I, I learned a valuable lesson, just like Peter. You know, we can, we can get caught up in our own importance and our own pride. And when we do that, we begin to look a little bit like those Pharisees and Sadducees rather than Christ's followers. Which brings me to our final passage. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? You know, it can be so hard sometimes to surrender our will to Jesus, to surrender our own desires, to deny ourselves and follow him. We live in this culture of instant gratification. Get it now. Go to the store. Buy it. Order it on Amazon. It'll be here in a day. You deserve it. Live your best life now. Look out for number one. What are you willing to surrender to follow Jesus? What are you willing to surrender to follow Jesus? We saw last week in my message that Hannah was willing to surrender her two-year-old toddler to Eli to serve the Lord for the rest of his life. Moses' mom was willing to take her three-month-old baby and put him in a basket and float him down the Nile River. What are we willing to surrender? The Christian life says, put Jesus first. Esteem others above yourself. It's in total contrast to what our world system says, to what our culture says. And so many times I have to check myself and say, what are my motives in this? How am I looking at this situation? Do I have God's perspective? Are my motives pure? Or am I really looking to gain favor or prestige or position? What do I need to surrender to God? What do you need to surrender to God? Are we denying ourselves and taking up our cross? Are we willing to sacrifice that much, even to death? I'm new to being a pastor, and I've done two weddings and two funerals. And one of my funerals was for my, my aunt, who was married to my Uncle Talmadge, who was a minister. And uh, Aunt Gracie's funeral was just uh, a wonderful celebration of her life. But the second funeral I did was for a man from China who was uh, a Buddhist. Kayla was, was there, and um, it was a very different funeral. The, the daughter called me and said, I want you to read scripture and be there, and so I was able to read scripture and present the gospel. But at the end of that funeral, the man's wife thanked me. Uh, she had limited English, but then she proceeded to the casket, and she just began to cry out in anguish and in pain and it cut right through you it was it was a long protracted cry of pain and Melanie and I were, were driving home and 
We don't know if, if he became a Christian or not, but it didn't seem that way. And she said, that was so different. And we figured out that it, it sounded like a grief without hope. That she was grieving without hope, that that was the end, that was final. I would never see my husband again. And we don't grieve as the world does. We have that hope. We know we'll see our loved ones again. I knew at my Aunt Gracie's funeral that one day I'll be able to see her again and my uncle. I'll be able to see my father. I'm going to ask the praise team if you would start coming up. And uh, I've got one last story, and I'm just going to warn you. Um, I thought it was a great story, a powerful story, and then I got emotional telling it in the first service, so if that may happen again, just give me grace. But it's a story of, of a father and a son. And the father was this kind of stoic guy. He didn't show a lot of emotion. You know, every now and then with his son, he would get a little, little teary-eyed, a little misty. And his son asked him, he said, Dad, he said, have I ever made you cry? And his dad said, yeah, yeah, there was one time. He goes, you were a real little fella. He said, you were three years old. He said, and I heard of this practice. I was home alone with you, and, and I was kind of bored, and I'd heard of this practice where you, you kind of lay out choices. He said, so I took our ottoman, and I set it out in the den, and I put on there a pen and a dollar bill and a toy. And the theory was if, if you picked the pen, then you were picking intelligence, and you would pursue intelligence in your life. And if you pick the dollar, then you would be pursuing money. And if you pick the toy, then you were just about the pleasures of life. He said, so I laid it all out, he says, and I looked at, at you and, and I said, son, I want you to choose. And he said, you stood there and you kind of wrinkled your brow and, and you looked at the choices and said, and you walked up. And you took your little arm, he says, and you pushed them all away. He said, and then you ran into my arms. And he said, at that moment, I realized that you thought I was one of the choices. I pray that we, we make that same choice, that we, we deny all those things that can entangle us, and we run into the arms of our Father. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for, for this time this morning with my family at River Bluff. Lord, I thank you that, that you are such a good God, that you love us so deeply, and Lord, that you, that you have so much grace for when we, when we mess up, when we fall short. Lord, I also thank you that you are that king who conquered death through the cross. That you are the Lord that we can go to with everything in our life. Father, I pray for my family this morning just to run into your arms, to rest in you, to linger in your presence. In Jesus' name, amen.